Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you this morning. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of John, and each week we've been looking at the, the big picture of why John wrote the book, and that was John 20, 31. Over the last weeks, I've given you some blanks on the screen as we've been trying to say John 20, 31 together, but I didn't even put it on the screen at all today. So I thought we'd try it. Do you want to see if you can say it with me? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. There you go. Good job. Without the words on the screen. So we're not quite as proficient as the kids a few weeks ago when they did all of Romans 12 by memory, but we'll, we'll get there, okay? We're getting there. We're continuing through John. Two weeks ago, we saw the miracle, the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the multitude. And there we saw in that situation Jesus showing us not only His power that He's God, we also saw John highlighting for us people who lack faith. We saw the disciples lack faith because they doubted Jesus' power to address the situation. But we also saw that the crowd lacked faith because they wanted to use Jesus to accomplish their purposes. And we saw that either extreme is still a lack of faith. Now, last week, that account continued because Jesus disperses the crowd. If you remember, the crowd was trying to make him king, to use him to be a revolutionary. He wasn't interested in that. So he disperses them, but he sends the disciples ahead, and they end up in a storm on the sea. And last week we looked at the fact that Jesus sent his disciples into the storm, but yet he remained there with them. He walks with them on the water to show us that he's present with us in the storms that he sends us into. We talked last week about how he sends us into the storms because he loves us, it grows us, it tests our faith in that. And we're picking up today with the count continuing. If you remember last week we ended with a miracle to where the boat reached the other side, like it appeared on the other side of the lake after they came through the storm. And today we're picking back up on that with the boat on the other side of the lake in Capernaum. Now, for us, this account's taken three weeks to get through. Two weeks ago, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. Last week, we saw the walking on the water. Today, we're picking up with Jesus teaching on the other side of the lake. But though it's taken us three weeks, friends, remember, this was about one 24-hour period. Jesus fed the multitude, the 5,000 men plus women and children, on an evening. The middle of the night, the third watch of the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., he walks on the lake across the water, and then he reaches the other side and starts to teach. So this is in about a 24-hour period, so realize it's all connected. Now, before we get to the account today, I want to ask you a few questions. First question I want to ask you, and this is probably a bad question. I didn't think through this question well in light of the fact we're smelling the barbecue chicken wafting through the walls here on the other side of the kitchen. But the question is, what is the hungriest you've ever been? Again, what a bad question for the day, right, as we prepare for the Haiti missions. But what is the hungriest you have ever been? Got it in your mind? Now, what did you do to work to address that hunger? When you found that hunger, what did you do to work to address it? I think back to college student years, a long time ago, and we get so hungry, what did you do? You start digging through your car looking for change, and you do a midnight run to Taco Bell, right? Like, oh good, I have 85 cents, I can buy a taco. And you dig it out, you work to solve the hunger. Well, how about when, if you're now an adult, and you're like, well, I'm hungry, what do I do? Well, I'm out of food, so I'm going to go to the store, I'm going to go shopping, I'm going to come home, I'm going to cook it. You work to solve the hunger. Maybe it's like, oh, I don't have enough money to do, eat what I want to eat, so I'm going to get a second job, whatever it is. You've been hungry, you've worked to address it. I think beyond the physical hunger for a minute. What is the greatest desire, non-hunger you, desire you've ever felt? What's the greatest desire you've ever felt? And then how did you work to get it fulfilled? Was it a desire to finish school? And so you worked hard to get it done. Was it a desire to get accepted to a certain school, to get a certain job, and you took many steps to get there? Perhaps it was a relationship you wanted. Perhaps it was something you wanted to purchase. I think about with our kids. They have these desires for the newest toy, and they're going to work. They'll, we can bribe them to basically 
you know, to save money by doing stuff for us just to go buy that toy that they want so bad. So what is the desire you've had and you've worked to fill it? Now, one last question before we get to our text. What's the greatest spiritual desire you've ever felt? When have you felt the greatest spiritual desires in your life? And did you try to work to satisfy those spiritual desires? We had a spiritual desire. Did you work in the same way you'd work for hunger desires or desires for things? Did you come to church more? Did you read your Bible more? Did you get in a new accountability group? Did you do more Bible reading and more prayer? Did you just try harder to be nice and to not sin? Did you order some new book? That's been my fault over the year. I'll just buy a book and maybe this will fix it. Did you read a new book on the topic? Did you somehow try to beat yourself up to show how remorseful you are? Did you try to work to fix that spiritual desire you felt? Friends, our text for today is all about spiritual desire and spiritual hunger. And so with those questions in mind and those thoughts in mind, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 22 this morning. We're looking on the teaching of Jesus saying that he is the bread of life. So John chapter 6, we'll start in verse 22. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the word of God? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. John chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. But his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Never comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray this day that your word would come alive to us, that you would send us the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth of the word and we'd understand more of what it means for Jesus to be the bread of life. Give us grace to understand it this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. There's one thing I want you to see from this text this morning as we look through it, and it's simply this, that our spiritual need cannot be satisfied by anything we do. It only can be satisfied by remaining in Jesus. Again, the main point that we're going to build everything around today is this, that our spiritual need cannot be satisfied by anything that we do. It can only be satisfied by remaining in Jesus. 
What's the context? What's going on here? We just looked at verses 23 through 25. You have this crowd that is gathered. This is the same group, let me remind you, of the people who just the day before tried to make Jesus their king. These are the people who tried to take him by force because they wanted him to overthrow Rome. And so they continue to seek after him. They get on boats. They cross the sea to try to find Jesus. And Jesus addresses them. And as he addresses them here, I want you to see this, that we'll see a lot about physical need versus spiritual need, but we'll see that our spiritual need cannot be satisfied by anything that we do. So look back at verses 26, and actually 25 through 27. Back in, in verse 25. When they, this crowd, found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, first of all, notice Jesus does not praise the crowd for following him. You know, if you're Jesus and this crowd has been this diligent to make you king and they've followed you and they've taken time, they've actually got on boats, maybe even paid to get on the boats and cross the sea to chase after you, and they find you, he's not like, well... You've got a few things wrong here, but man, thanks for following me. Thanks for coming to look. There's no praise of them here. Because why Jesus is God. He knows their hearts. He doesn't commend them for their efforts, friends. They're seeking him all wrong. This crowd is a group of materialists. They're people who want easy food. They want easy freedom. They're focused just on their physical desires. And Jesus indicts them here and tells them to stop laboring for the food that perishes. Their lives are marked by laboring for the things of this earth. And before we throw stones at them, how easy is it for us to end up in the same place that they are laboring for things that perish, laboring for things that don't last, like wealth? How easy is it to get distracted and try to spend our lives laboring for wealth that we can't take with us when we die? To spend our lives laboring for the newest technology, spend thousands on the newest technology, and then in five years it's obsolete. Laboring to have the nicest clothes, the nicest house, to have to be famous, to be well-known, to be well-liked by our friends, to always win, whether it's in academics or in sports. And friends, we don't, we don't have to be taught to be that way. That's what naturally comes out in our sinful nature. If you're parents and you have kids, you know that. You don't have to tell your kids, hey, you're, you're too heavenly-minded. Focus a little bit more on this world. Our kids come out focusing on this world. They want to save up for the newest toy. They want to be popular. They want to beat everyone else. It's part of our natural sinful condition on this. We labor for things that perish. But what does Jesus say about that? Verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. Jesus says, stop laboring for those things. Now, just quick clarification. Jesus is not saying don't work. The Scripture's got a huge theology of work and the goodness of work and how God has called us to work. That's not what this is about. But this is saying, do not labor for things that perish. I mean, stop running after those things that don't last. Stop finding your identity in all of those things. Stop crowding out God as you seek first after the things of the world. Stop doing those things. Why? Because that new toy, that fame, that wealth, that new piece of technology, that new house, that new car is not going to satisfy you. Don't labor. Don't spend your life running after those things. What do you long for instead? He calls us to long for something that will meet our deepest needs. He calls us to long for something that will last for eternity. But most importantly, he's calling us to, to long for something that we can't work for that he has to give to us. Look at verse 28. This crowd asked him, verse 28, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? They're so blinded what Jesus is offering them. They're so lost in all this. Notice what he said, what must we do? 
The Greek tense here means it's an ongoing action. What must we regularly, daily be doing to be doing the works of God? That means which God requires of us. They're basically saying, okay, we get it, Jesus. We have a spiritual need. So what can I do every day to get God to accept me to have my need met? What can I do to meet that need? See, my question was intentional at the beginning. You know, when, we, when we're hungry, we work to get food. When we have a desire for a new toy or a new piece of technology, we work to get it. But when it comes to the spiritual realm, we're so prone like this crowd here to want to work to meet those needs as well. And the people totally miss that Jesus said it's something that he has to give. And friends, honestly, this is what distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. Every other world religion is all about what you have to do to get to God. But the gospel turns all that on its head because it's absolutely, we can do nothing. It's what God has done for us instead. We cannot do anything to earn from God. We cannot do anything to gain eternal life. We cannot do anything to have our deepest needs met. And Jesus shows them that. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, our little grammar time here, notice the tense change. The people said, what works, plural, must we be ongoing doing? And Jesus says, the work, singular, is simply this. They've been asking for the many things they need to do. And Jesus says, there's only one thing, and that's faith. And not just any faith you want to create up. There's lots of people, lots of sincere faith, but they still lead a path to hell. There's only one faith, and that's faith in Christ. And Jesus, the one who sent, the one affirmed by God, verse 27, the one with whom God set his seal, meaning God has affirmed in this. But the crowd can't get it. They're trying to work to be accepted by God, and they've had that for so long in their life, they just can't get it. Look at verses 30 to 34. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Friends, their lack of understanding leads to Jesus giving one of the greatest teachings in Scripture. And that is going back to who he is and that we cannot have our spiritual needs satisfied by anything we do. They can only be satisfied by remaining in Jesus. Look back at verse 33 we just read. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Friends, what we need is not some mystical experience here. What we need is not some intangible goal out there. What we need is not just more spiritual discipline and more quiet times and more religious activity. What we need is Jesus himself. In verse 33, he tells us this bread that he's been talking about is simply himself. Again, for the bread of God is he, Jesus, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread is Jesus himself. He's offering to us his very presence. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Friends, he begins, I am the bread of life. Think back to the Old Testament for a minute. When God's people said, what is your name, God? His answer was, I am. And so when Jesus starts saying, I am here, take notice. He is claiming to be God. He's showing us that he is God. He is saying, I am. Now he's describing to us what he's offering to us. He is the bread of life. Friends, the one standing before this crowd, this crowd that's saying, what do we need to do? What can I do? What can I do every day to gain God's acceptance? The one they're asking what I can do is the one who created them in the world. The one who sustains the world is standing right there before them. The one who keeps the moon from crashing into the earth and keeps the planets orbiting the sun and keeps the sun burning. The one with all that power in his spoken word is standing before them 
And they're going, hey, what can I do to gain something from you? They totally miss it. This Wednesday before them has come to rescue them and come to rescue us. And notice this, this rescue that Jesus is offering for them has a starting point. Look at verse 35 and notice how it's described what he requires of us. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He's saying, what do I require? I don't require you to do work upon work upon work to earn God's acceptance. You need to believe. And he's going to describe it different ways. He's going to say, come, leave your old way of life and come follow me. Believe. And friends, we talked about it week after week. Belief is not just knowledge. Belief is, is knowledge that changes our life. It's a trust. It's a yielding to Jesus. And he uses another term to describe it down in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. What does it mean to look on Jesus? It means to gaze. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have ever been out west to the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, I've only been once. But I can assure you one thing. When I walked up to the canyon rim the first time and I saw the vast of the Grand Canyon, I wasn't like, oh, that's cool, and I walk away. There's a gazing. You, when you see the Grand Canyon for the first time in person, you're mesmerized. You can't take your eyes off of it. You're fixated on it because it's so big, so glorious, so grand, you just stare. You're not like, well, that's cool. It looked just like the picture I saw. Okay, let's go, let's go to McDonald's now. You're fascinated by it. That's the image of this word, gaze. When you see Jesus, when you understand who he is, when you see a glimpse of his glory, you cannot take your eyes off of him because he's so glorious. And so all this description of coming, believing, looking is all describing that point in time when you trust Christ, when you leave your old way life to follow him, when you believe in such a way it changes you, when when you gaze upon him and see his beauty, see his glory, and you don't want to look away. Friends, The question for you is, has that time come? But the problem is, most of us stop there. Most of us see the gospel as that point in time when I came, when I believed, when I saw, but we stop at that. But the reality is, Jesus offers us a lot more than a point in time rescue. I mean, think about it. If you go down to the beach and get out in the ocean and your raft floats away and you're lost in the Gulf of Mexico... And a Coast Guard helicopter comes and they pick you up and they rescue you. You're at the point you think you're going to die out there and they rescue you from that. There's a point in time rescue. And perhaps for the rest of your life, you're going to be thankful for whatever that Coast Guard soldier is who rescued you, right? But the reality is you probably will never have a relationship with that Coast Guard soldier. You'll be thankful the rest of your life, but you're not going to be experiencing friendship with that person the rest of your life. Too often we see the gospel and our salvation is like that. That God rescued us from our sin and we're somehow thankful I'm not going to hell, but that's it. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what the bread of life is talking about. It's not a point in time rescue, and that's the end of it. It's a point in time rescue that leads to something so much more, that leads to a relationship with the great I am, to the one who creates, who sustains the glorious one. Friends, Jesus is telling us and saying, I am the bread of life. Yes, I will give you a rescue, but I'm giving you so much more. He's coming to give us an ongoing relationship with him. Jesus is offering us not just a get-out-of-hell-free card, He's calling us to and giving us his presence. He's giving us his friendship. He's giving us his unending love. He's giving us his guidance. He's giving us his truth. He's giving us his loving correction. Yes, he's giving us, sending us into the storms to grow us. That's all part of receiving his grace. Notice this in this text, that this is ongoing, that what Jesus came for in giving us the bread of life was not just a point in time decision in your life, but an ongoing life of his presence with you. Look back at verse 35 here. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger for the first three years after they pray the prayer. 
No. It doesn't say, whoever believes in me shall never thirst when they're at youth camp or at the church conference. What are the words he uses here? I am the bread of whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never, no, not never, thirst. Friends, Jesus didn't come so you wouldn't go to hell. Jesus came so that you might submit to him as Lord, worship him, and be in a relationship, a very real relationship with him so that you never hunger and never thirst. It's an ongoing relationship where he daily satisfies us, not just a point in time, but an ongoing daily being satisfied in his presence because he's always with that, with us. Verse 37 shares the same idea. Look at verse 37. All that the Father has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out one there at a church gathering. No, I'll never cast out during the first 10 years. I'll never cast out if they have the strictest of spiritual disciplines. No. He says, I will never, no, never reject you. If you come to me, if you believe, if you look, if you gaze and see me and my beauty, and I change you, I give you that radical transformation from above that we've been talking about throughout the Gospel of John. He's saying, I will never, no, never reject you. And friends, that's what we desperately need. Like we saw last week, life is tough. Jesus did not come to give us an easy life. He came to give us eternal life. And he came to satisfy us in his presence. So, friends, when we don't get that acceptance to that school we want, when we don't get the job we want, are we still satisfied in his presence even when life doesn't work out like we want? Friends, if the relationship doesn't work out like we want, if that desire we've been longing for for decades doesn't get fulfilled, are we still able to be satisfied in Jesus even if life is not happening the way we want life to happen? Can we turn to Jesus and enjoy him as our bread to be satisfied in his ongoing daily presence even when life isn't what you wanted life to be. And friends, we can. And how is that possible? It's not possible by anything we can do. It's not possible by our striving. Just like if you're a college student hungry and you dig around for money to go to Taco Bell, that's not what this is the image of for us. There's nothing we can do to find the satisfaction in God. It's only something that He can do for us. Look back at verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given to me, but raise it up, on the last day. Friends, how is it possible to be satisfied in Jesus even when the world is spinning out of control around you? So from our perspective at least, how is it? Because it's not you holding God. It's God holding you. The reason that you're able to experience Jesus as the bread of life, even if your life seems to be falling apart from your human perspective, is not because you're trying to cling to God people, but because God is holding you. Friends, I think back to an image in my mind. When I was a little boy, when I was around four years old, my parents started taking me to Jordan-Hare Stadium. I got brainwashed on Auburn football my whole life. And I remember as a little boy, the crowds of tens of thousands of people, and when you're only about that tall, those big crowds are kind of intimidating getting through the stadium gates. My security was not that I'm this little kid trying to hang on to my dad and hope the crowd doesn't push me away. My little hand could barely keep on. But the fact that my dad with his big hand had reached down and had such a tight death grip on me, it didn't matter who pushed me, I wasn't going anywhere because I was in his hands. I think the same thing when I'm with my boys now and we're out in a really crowded place. My hope is not, well, I hope they can cling to me and not get pushed away by the crowd. My hope is I've got them and they're not going anywhere. And friends, that's a tiny picture of what God is doing with us here. Our faith, our hanging on to Jesus, our enjoying him as the bread of life, letting him satisfy us, has absolutely nothing to do with our feeble efforts. Our feeble efforts would be like a baby trying to hold on to us in a crowd. What God offers to us is Him and His infinite power holding on to us, clinging to us here. It's what we're told in Philippians 1, 6, that He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Friends, our hope is not in what we're doing. Our hope is what He has already done for us. And Jesus is showing that to them. Basically, Jesus is teaching them and showing them and us what the disciples just experienced the night before. 
if you think about what we saw last week, Jesus sent them into the storms. The storms are raging. But who was watching them? He was. Who was right there in their midst? Jesus was as well. He was there to satisfy them even in the midst of the storms. And so, friends, our spiritual needs cannot be satisfied by anything you or I do. It can only be satisfied by remaining in Jesus. Which leads me to ask, are you and am I satisfied in Jesus today? As you've been sitting here and smelling the barbecue chicken wafting through the walls here, the thought of physical food and the stomach starts turning and the mouth starts salivating, there's something that you want. And once you eat that, that's going to be delicious, right? So I hope you'll stay for the lunch because it'll be wonderful. But friends, in five or six hours, we'll still be hungry again. But friends, are you today satisfied in Jesus' presence? No matter what's happening in your life, no matter what if your other dreams are or are not happening, are you today content in His presence, feasting on His presence, enjoying His presence, and satisfied in Him and Him alone? Do you realize that He is right here with you, offering His friendship, His love, His guidance, His truth, and His correction? Friends, if you are, rejoice and thank God because there's not anything you've done to have that. You can't give yourself credit like, man, I'm, I'm feasting on the bread of life because I have my quiet time every day this week and because I didn't miss a time at church and because I didn't miss my prayer. You can't take any credit. If you're experiencing and feasting on Jesus, it has absolutely nothing to do with you. It's all His work, His grace at work in your life. If you have desire for the Word of God, if you have desire for His presence, it's because He, in, through the work of His Holy Spirit, has put it into your heart. Praise Him for it. Don't take credit for it. But friends, what do you do when you're at that season where that desire is lacking? When you're not feasting on on Jesus, when you're not experiencing Him in the midst of the trials where you've taken your eyes off of Jesus and you've forgotten about His presence, what do you do then? Go back to my earlier question. You don't strive harder. You don't just try to get more discipline. You don't just try to read a new book on this. What do you do when you're lacking in His presence? You cry out to Him and Him alone. Friends, there's an amazing Bible study that Julia did years ago called Idol Addiction. A lady named Julie Spartman wrote it. And she said that here's where Jesus has called us to be, and we all know what he's called us to be, and here's where we are. Every single one of us has a gap. Now, sometimes the gap is small, sometimes the gap is big, but there's always a gap. We are never in this life where we need to be in knowing Jesus. The question is, when you see that gap, friends, what do you do? And we tend to have one or two extremes that most of us run to. Sometimes we despair. We throw up our hands. It's hopeless. I'll never be able to overcome the sin. I'll never be able to, to know Jesus the way I want to. And that's what we saw last week when the, or two weeks ago when the disciples lacked faith because they doubted Jesus' power. Friends, when we despair, we are lacking faith. But the other danger that's equally dangerous, when we see that gap, when we know who Jesus has called us to be, to be experiencing him as the bread of life day in and day out, and we know we're not there, the other danger is I'm just going to work to get there. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to strive more. I'm going to do more spiritual disciplines. I'm going to do more you know, whatever, reading new books, going to this conference, and we try to strive in our own strength to get there, and friends, that won't get us there either. The only thing that will ever bridge that gap is Jesus himself. The only thing that will ever bridge that gap is his presence that he and his kindness gives to us. So I want to end with a quote from a pastor from the late 1800s up in the Northeast. His name is James Montgomery Boyce, and he said this. He said, but what must I do? And that's what the question I want you to think about. If you're at a place to where you know that you're not feasting on Jesus like you should, experiencing his presence like you should, enjoying his presence moment by moment of his friendship, his guidance direction, day by day, what should you do? Here's what Boy says. The answer is you must stop doing. You've done quite enough for one lifetime. For you have ruined yourself by your doing. Your question should not be what should I do, but rather what has he already done? The answer to that question is simply that it has all been done. He died for you. The work is finished. You need only to let go of your own attempts to earn God's favor. 
and fall instead of the gentle and waiting arms of the Savior. Friends, did you hear that? The answer is you must stop doing. You have done quite enough for one lifetime, for you have ruined yourself by your doing. Your question should not be, what should I do? But rather, what has he done? And friends, that's our hope. So today, if you're at a place to where your spiritual desires are strong and you long for Jesus' presence and you're walking with him and you're experiencing his friendship and his guidance and his love in your life, don't take credit for it. Point others to Jesus. You point your own heart to Jesus because he has done it for you. But friends, if you're at a place today where you see that gap, my encouragement to you is don't despair. That's lack of faith. And don't try to fix it. That's lack of faith. Cry to Jesus and ask him, I need grace. Come, change my affections, change my desires. Let me experience you today that I might be satisfied in you and in you alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your grace. That is our only hope. God, thank you for not leaving us in our own attempts to try to find you. Father, that would be a hopeless place to be if we had to try to work to earn your favor. If we had to try to work to get right with you. If we had to just think that, well, I'm not going to hell, but that's it. Father, that would be such a hopeless place. God, I pray in my heart and the hearts of these friends that you would help us realize what it means to enjoy you as the bread of life. To experience eternal life now, like we've seen throughout the Gospel of John. The eternal life is not just some future tense thing that's going to happen one day. That was that. It starts now. You've given us your presence now. And God, would you give us grace upon grace that we might sense your presence, we might see you at work. Or for those in this room who are really feasting on you, who are really enjoying your presence day by day, God, I pray you let that be contagious to others. God, that around them at work this week, at school this week, wherever they are, if they're on the ball fields this week, when someone says, it was different, God, I pray they'd be able to give you the credit, not take credit for themselves, but point those others around them to you. And so, Lord, for those who are feasting on you and experiencing Jesus as the bread of life, would you, O oh Lord, in your kindness, give them opportunities, even this week, to point others to the satisfaction that can only be found in Christ. Lord, for those right now who today are coming in distracted, sensing that gap, knowing that I need to find the fullness of walking with Jesus daily, but are not there yet. How would you let them realize that the gospel is not just for the time they trusted Christ, but it's for today also? Would you help them realize this day that they need your grace just as much today as the day they trusted Christ the first time? And God, for all of us, would you let us gaze upon you, see your beauty, see the wonder of it, and may we find our satisfaction not in running after the things of this world, O Lord. God, just running after you. Forgive us for fixing our minds and our hearts so much on things that don't last. God, we need grace to fix our minds on you and to run after you instead. We ask you to do that in our lives today and all week ahead, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?